This is the thing that all these public companies do, and you want to be that public company, but you have the tools and you still don't continue to do it, and that's so frustrating. Welcome to Tradeoffs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and ProfitWell's Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about what to look for in 2021. 2021. This is our 2021 episode. We've had a few weeks to reflect. Defining your virtuous circle. It's like, what can we do that no one else can? And in addition to that, what's the thing that's our North Star? Customer development apathy. Hey, go do customer development. Just go talk to people. You don't have an excuse. <laughs> and a lot more to kick your week into gear. I think I'll a lot pull of people... out the dictionary, Patrick. Ready? No, no, hold on. Either way, there's trade-offs. There's always trade-offs. What's up, man? What's going on? It's been a little while. I mean, we've known each other 10 years, so lot, 10 years. Lot, lot, lots going on. Lots going lots on. Lots going on, and it's 2021. So 2021. Yeah, this lots is of stuff our first on. episode of 2021. It's actually the first episode of the reboot, Tradeoffs yes. Reboot. Um, basically, Heaton and I weren't able to hang out face-to-face, and we were doing podcasting then, and now we're like, eh, screw it. Let's bring it back. So uh, yeah, yep. I think, I don't know, how do you think this is going to evolve? I think it's, you and I are just having our tea chats basically with a recording. That's kind of how, how I think about it. How do you think about it? Works for me. I mean, uh, you know, we definitely share stuff and ideas and things that like are, I would say either somewhat controversial or places where like we disagree on things and then come to something together. And like, I think for me, this is just an opportunity for everybody to hear us talk about this stuff because we always get value from it and when other people join us they tend to get value from it so for me this is just like i get to hang with you we get to talk about interesting stuff and maybe other people care about it that that's my take i like it yeah i'll take that well especially since i think what's really funny is you and i have had some very specific arguments over the past decade we've had uh like very specific uh you know freemium we've argued about and now we're on the same page I think uh, certain sales strategies we've argued about. I'd say I'd say a, a, ABM is something where it was the opposite, where like yeah, 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 yeah. you were on one side and I was on the other, while freemium was the opposite. So like yeah, 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 we're, yeah. we're aligned now, but like I was like, why is Patrick doing all this ABM stuff and sending people big boxes of things or whatever he's doing? Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. I don't know about this stuff, uh, but I'm 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 a convert now. I'm I'm into that stuff. I What's think really it's, funny? I think it's very is, valuable. Yeah, ABM is basically reinventing. Or it's like sales of 10 years ago. It's like we forgot sales 10 years ago and now we're calling it something else. That's my hot take. Uh, I'll get some emails about that. That'll be exciting. Um, but 2021, well, I mean, it's, man. It's, it's, it's called account-based marketing and that's been happening forever, right? I know. So, but we have a, we have yeah. a, it's not something until it's an acronym, right? That's what they tell us in this, this world. Well, apparently. Yeah. Actually, I'm curious because you, you've been in the game quite some time. Um, was Crazy Egg like one of the first SaaS companies Technically, like I like, how do you how did you think about that time period? Because it was like you, Crazy Egg, and I'm just like setting the stage for everyone. But also, I'm, I'm actually really curious because I don't know the answer to that. It was 05. so I think the issue in 2005 was when people thought about software, they thought about enterprise mm, and like Salesforce. Salesforce yeah, yeah, and and the funny thing is, Salesforce actually started SMB. Interesting. And and then they went up market. In fact. I was listening to a talk today, literally before we were recording at a little event uh, on Zoom with Todd, who's the CEO of Okta. Yeah. And he said when he left Salesforce, they were still SMB. It was only after he left. And I think that was like 2010, if I'm not mistaken, that they turned into more, uh, they went up market. Yeah. So what I wanted to say was like, when you thought of SaaS, you thought of 
sales and enterprise and not self-service. So Crazy Egg was definitely one of the early popularized self-service SaaS tools that didn't mm. require you to talk to someone or a demo for you to be able to use a product. I know mm. that sounds kind of ridiculous today because like it's the norm, but back then, like even like you know, another thing is like we even pitch investors for it and never raise money for Crazy Egg, and they just kept coming back and saying, "How are you going to scale it? Self-service doesn't scale. People don't just sign up for things. <laughs> People just don't sign up for things and use them." And then all, all we could do was like, "Well." Look at Basecamp over there. They have a massive business just off SMBs. Yeah. What do you mean? You know, and and we couldn't explain it to them because the numbers weren't out. The value of self-service wasn't understood. There was just a set of assumptions around this is how software is sold. And it's because software used to be much harder to sell because it implied that you were putting like machines in your racks and servers yeah. or the cloud wasn't as big of a thing when you had to do a CRM before Salesforce, you were literally buying machines and running software on these machines in your data center. Yeah. Right. How do you, so it's really interesting or whatever. Yeah. That brings up a really interesting concept because, you know, we were joking about ABM and freemium and we both brought each other to the right answer on those questions, I think. Mm -hmm. But my, what's really funny is how do you avoid, or how do you think about avoiding that from a product perspective that mindset like how do you avoid what the investors did there where they're like well self-serve is never going to scale because they're they're very much just looking at past data right but the market's moving so quickly that all of a sudden you're you're in a market where like self-serve is very viable and now self-serve is one of the only ways to grow unless you're going to go like hardcore you know enterprise software even snowflake has a free trial yeah it's wild right, right? and you can sign up online and go after it and they're like heavy enterprise if you look at anything yeah. and their copy and all that I mean, here's the funny thing. As an investor, you can theorize everything and you can come up with your theories and all that. And you can even imagine that from your board meetings with, you know, the startups you're at, that like you're seeing certain things and you have data points, but you're still an investor. You're not sitting here on the ground hearing customers every day, day in and out, say certain things. And so to me, like my framework now is like, we're all just here to reduce friction around the buying process. Mm. That's it. And like, if you thought about that 15 years ago, your only conclusion would be, let's make it easy for people to buy. Yeah. And how do we make it as easy as possible and not any easier? <laughs> yeah. Right. Everything you use is free and you yeah. never have to pay for it. Yeah. And you can sign up and get value within minutes. I want to say seconds, but that's ridiculous. So let's say minutes. And so that's like the benchmark. That's a bar. That's like what your buyer is going to want, right? If that's how you think about it, then like you're just going to have a different perspective on it instead of saying, oh, this is the theory or this is a strategy today. I think it's more about what are you seeing in front on the front line with your customers and what are you hearing and how do you solve those problems? So like, like, and you've seen this too in your business, right? Like in your category with ProfitWell, it's a sort of, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to butcher it, but I'm going to say it like this, but it's, it's basically a data analytics tool. Yeah. And those realistically should be like the framework is Google <laughs> Analytics. The framework is Google Analytics is free. Yeah. Even though bar. even though what you do might be super valuable, people need to see their churn data and their revenue data and their this customer is why it's data. Because no one wants yeah. to pay for it. Thank you. Yeah. And so if you thought how everyone else did before you, you'd be like, oh, it's a small free plan or it's a free trial or you have to do a demo and you know, there's all this integration work and all that. And there's all this like, you know, time to pull in their data and, you know, 
merge it and all that. And oh, hey, that's going to cost us a lot of money for every customer. But yeah. you didn't think of it like that. You were like, no way, hold on. That's not the thing that people want to pay for. What they want to pay for and are willing to pay for and is value aligned is this idea that by using this product, I will make more money. Yeah. And you figured that out with retain and like the way you're thinking about the business, which is like help you recover money, yeah. which means I made money. And then you have the whole pitch of like, you, you folks have the whole pitch of like, when you make money, we make money. Yeah. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. Yeah. I don't think I could have articulated this back when we were making these decisions, but you know that quote from, I know Cancel likes to quote it a lot, um, from Bernadette Jiwa, the whole, whoever gets closest to the customer wins. Yeah. I think that the modification that I would make at this point is whoever gets closest to the customer, which is a very product statement. I think that's a very product, like ease of use that you said, and makes it easy for them to say yes. That's the company that's going to win. And I think the way I would say it in a pithy way is whoever gets closest to customer value wins. Yeah, but that's not as tactical to me. But yeah, I get you what you're saying. Well, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. value, value, yeah, I agree. Value is implication that like you're focused on value delivery for the customer. And when I think about what you're doing, the competitors in your space focus on value de delivery being the numbers, the metrics, yeah. the data, the analytics. Well, they didn't cost. focus on- It's cost. Yeah, they yeah. didn't focus on value delivery being about how do we make you success, more successful with your customers? So it's a different way of thinking about so it. So I know I know a product manager would would convolutedly try to connect those things. It's it's more of a primary versus a secondary, right? Yep. So it's more of we just kind of cut out that whole conversation and we're just like, we're okay giving you a bunch of value for nothing because you're going to then go buy something where we're giving you a ton of value and you're gonna pay us for it, right? I think for them it's more like, oh, if they do this thing then they're going to get the value and we're going to charge for doing that thing. And, and it's, it's almost like a cost basis or an operations basis type product. And this is where I think it's really kind of fascinating that the best companies to go back to that quote of whoever gets closest to the customer and makes it easy for them to say yes, they're basically putting their core competency on top of their distribution model. And they're like aligning them as, as closely as possible. Yep. So the, the one company that I wrote about recently that's doing this is like Disney plus, right? Their core competency is telling stories, their distribution models, the Disney Plus, they own that customer. It's this really interesting like little life cycle that they can well, have. And, and the IP, right? So the story totally. is the IP. And 100%. so there's and then they, now they've locked down their IP into their system, which wasn't totally. the case, right? Marvel, all that stuff was all over the place. And now they're like, no, no, no wait, hold on. We have to own it. Cause if we own we, we already own the IP, it's ours. We license it to other people, but they make the money. Totally. Well, and I think what's interesting- Now we want to make the money. Yeah, right? and, and what's the implication though, which I think is really fascinating is that it is owning owning that IP. Like our IP at ProfitWell is understanding and using the data. And then we distribute that yes. in different ways, right? And yes. we distribute that in the most obvious way with analytics and allow anyone to basically for free use the product. And then that understanding are, are kind of like tentacles for you know cash, if you will, is basically um, you know these different paid products that you plug in. And- I think what I what I kind of worry about is along enough of a timeline, it gets really fascinating if you've chosen that IP correctly, that core competency correctly or not. That's what gets kind of scary, right? Because like, is Snowflake that much better? I don't know. Like, is it that much better? Are they going to keep innovating enough to be that much better? That's what gets kind of scary. I think it just goes back to closest to the customer. If you're close to the customer mm. and you're able to build 
an organization that stays on top of that and is able to double down on core value and extend it as you have reach and distribution, it, it just solves a problem. But the thing is, like my understanding and belief is the reason you were able to do that is because you were willing to have conversations that were uncomfortable mm. about what you thought the business was versus what the customer said versus what the competitors of the market look like. Yeah. And and that is strategy. And, and it's actually product strategy because right now, today, the way I like to think of it is like all the easy problems are solved in SaaS. Yeah. All the tools you need for all the easy stuff, the problems are solved. So if you're going to go build yet another easy tool that competes like, let's say, in the email market, that's cool. You'll make money and, and you'll make a lot of money. Like look yeah. at ConvertKit and others. But the the real money in the new way in that market is Substack, hmm. where they actually take a cut of those emails you're sending. Yeah. They take a cut of your revenue, and they and they and they are basically helping people make money in ways they didn't know how before. And I'm sitting here like all the email service providers completely missed out on that, yeah, and still haven't grabbed onto it. And that blows my mind because if you just thought about the natural progression of what people are trying to do with their emails, you'll realize that they're all just trying to make money. And that is not where that market started. But if you came in today and said, we want to compete in that market and you started just walking through it, you'd be like, what's closest to revenue there and what's closest to value? Well, people are sending emails and trying to make money from it. It's a really cumbersome process for the tooling. Yet we have things like Stripe on one end and things like MailChimp on the other. Those mm -hmm. things are not connected, but companies or Customers keep trying to connect those things. So if you went close to the customer and then you focused on value delivery and understanding how they basically followed the money, yeah. your conclusion is something like Substack. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, it's a foregone conclusion at that point. And so I, I guess my point is like, I find it almost like a double-edged sword. You don't want to overthink your strategy early, but if you don't think enough about it to know that your starting point is correct, you will never make it to the other place you need to get to and you'll be scrambling to catch up to other people once they figure those things out, yeah. which is fine if you're set up to do that. So today, the way I think about it is we do our best at product strategy. We really focus on what's foundational data, to your point, mm -hmm. that we can do a lot more with over time as we either get more of it or we get better as a team dealing with it, machine learning, data science, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, go figure out how to set yourself up so that if someone discovers something, that you should have, you're one, aware of it, and two, ready to capitalize on. Hmm. So like if someone invents something better than you in terms of what you can do with subscription data, my expectation as a customer is that you're going to do it because I'm already working with you. Interesting. I don't want to go to the other thing unless you make me. The only way you're going to make me is if you're not willing to do it. Yeah. And you're going to see this play out more and more in SaaS, especially in the crowded markets. And Substack's already kind of having this problem where there are features and functionality in traditional email service providers that Substack does not provide. Yeah. And now that people are making money, they're like, oh, we're going to go over to Ghost. And I've seen so many threads about this. And like, I wouldn't go to Ghost, but that's a whole different conversation. But they're willing to go to say, oh, this thing helped me make money, but I want to switch. And they're not switching because they care about Substack's cut or anything like that because Substack has made that really easy. But there's functionality in the tool that Substack has not built yet that these other tools have had for a long time. And if you can still jerry-rig this situation hmm. like we used to do when we wanted to charge you know, people because you know, 
it's an email paid email newsletter. So when you think about this stuff, it's like you almost have no choice but to think early on about where can this go, what's foundational, and where should we start, and what's the right business model in the beginning, and where does it evolve. And then on top of that, I think you have to add this layer of like preparation to basically chase things that make sense when someone else figures them out. And I haven't really seen organizations extremely well designed around that, except like a few that are like now public and obviously the stock price is growing. So Atlassian comes to mind. HubSpot also comes to mind as two that I've seen. What have they chased? Atlassian? Yeah, or even HubSpot. I mean, well, HubSpot sales probably in service org, right? Well, well, if you go into the nitty gritty of HubSpot, they've chased every marketing feature that they possibly can have into That's their true. tool before they even went to sales. They got really good at 80% good features on top of the core marketing stack of leads and traffic. So mm-hmm. they have pop-ups to ask questions on a website. I mean, Literally, if I think of a tool for marketing that's like just HubSpot's got it. Featurey yeah. tools, they've got it, dude. No matter what. Like even like DocSend. You know DocSend, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got that too. They got yeah. that. What do they not have? Is the bigger I would pose back to you in marketing. I actually don't know. The payments. Right, they exactly. The payment like, part. Sure. But yeah. They, they don't need it because their customers though. don't care about that, right? But yeah. but maybe they will one day. But like that's impressive. And then you look at the sales stuff and they started with a little wedge. And then they just realize now we're just going to build a whole CRM, yeah. right? And and there's a bunch of strategic things I assume happened there because Salesforce was an investor and like this free CRM thing comes and like, again, there's all kinds of stuff. But once you're public, everyone's a competitor. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So like- Let's just um, put it this way. There's, there's a reason that HubSpot is not on those obnoxious but very effective ads that Mark Benioff and Salesforce does. I think that will change, but there's got to be a reason somewhere. Some something's going. There you on. go, right? And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and out of any company from that I've like had enough time to talk with different people there, HubSpot always comes back as like, oh, we we really care about our strategy. Like we 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 really really care about our not just product strategy, corporate strategy, business strategy, partnership strategy. I mean, everything's like strategy is a word. If I were to say what is HubSpot, it's like a strategy beast. I think of it lasting in the same way. They didn't use the muscle of we build features fast. They use the muscle of if something pops off and we can sell through mm-hmm. with our channel, whatever their channels are, they have multiple ones now, we should buy it. We should yeah. buy it. So they're an acquisitive company from the beginning. And so their muscle and strategy is like, okay, we own developers, so to speak, yeah. the mindset and the mind of them because of Jira plus Confluence. Page, Jira, Confl- yeah, and then yeah, they just yeah. start saying, okay, all these things. Right. Like, let, let's just find the ones that make sense for our core use cases and double down on it. And then even like Trello, it's like Trello is a little piece of Jira, like in terms of the use cases that people use Trello for. But somebody realized that that thing is going to kill Jira at some point or has the potential to. Yeah. Because of the way that it works. So it's like, why don't we own both? Yeah, it's worth a couple, couple pieces. Of right. And they, and, and they yeah. paid like I think half a billion for it, which was super high considering the revenue at the company at the time. Now the valuations have gone insane where like it seems kind of cheap to be honest, but I view it as like, we're just in a world where like there's certain muscle that you kind of develop early on and you just have to keep doubling down on it. And if you lose sight of that, you end up losing the market. Yeah. I think for us, we, we developed this into, you know, kind of like, what is our virtuous circle? Right. And, and that's what you're really defining is, you know, Belfour and crew call it loops and all these other things. But I think it's from a product perspective. It's like, what can we do that no one else can? And in addition to that, 
what's the thing that's our North Star? And then within those like subsets of the North Star, we're going to do everything, right? So for retain, you know, plug it in, reduces your churn. That's like the North Star. And then underneath that, we will attack every little optimization, whether it's big Everything or small. that touches that. But yeah, then it, we won't, or we'll build something only in the service to that. And then we'll have a couple of different, you know, stars out there that we attack, but our North Star is we make you more money. Um, it's a basic concept. By reducing churn, basically. Yeah, well, no, right, I think as a company, churn, well, right. no, I think it's it's expanded. Yeah. Like, it's not just, you know, we have our pricing churn. product yeah. that's evolving. Um, yep. There's some other products we're working on that I'm not quite ready to talk Great. about, but the basic idea is that, yeah, that's 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 the virtue circle we go after is using the data, understanding the data, deploying that understanding in the product that therefore makes you more money. When you make more money, we make more money, which allows us to study the data more, build more product, and, et cetera. And I think the key you went after that gets missed in these conversations is basically this idea that you found the one thing to start with that was a big win for your customers. Yeah. Before you went on and said, okay, it's not just about churn, it's about revenue. Because in my mind... I'm, I still think of you as about churn. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, no, you're fine. but that's the original thing that you established in the market, That'll right? Be and then the now thing you're we saying, talk about loudest for a while now. So yeah, it'll right, be good. right, yeah. right. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. like that, that's what you need to do. But here's the key, right? Like you don't just stay there. And that's my point about these email service providers. Mm. I am shocked that Substack needs to exist. Yeah, it's interesting. Like just full blown shocked because all someone had to do a PM at one of those ESPs instead of looking at the gravy train because those businesses are gravy trains for the most part. Yeah, they they would look outside and say, oh, "Wait, wait, hold on. What are people actually trying to do? Why are they using us plus WordPress plus Stripe?" Yeah, because that was a common stack for a lot of accepting people. payments for an email product, right? So many people. and Substack comes in and be like, "Oh, that, that, that something doesn't sound right. Like that, that this needs to be one thing, right?" And I'm sure I don't think they thought of it like that, but I'm taking the position of I'm one of the ESPs. What should I have done? And I think they still have opportunity, but. I'm pretty sure Substack is going to hit nine figures in revenue sooner than we can possibly imagine. It's you know, wild. Just because of where the world is right now. And and I, I've been, you know, I'll say this because I just don't care and I have no stake in it, but like I really want ConvertKit to compete with them personally. I think, yeah. I was, was about to say, what I was about to say is I, I don't know enough about Substack. So this is a little rude of me to say. Intuitively, I want to short Substack and go all in on ConvertKit. Because I think that the way that they think about the they, they started from the experience perspective and they're adding payments, right? They're yes. not adding payments going to the experience. And, you know, I'm sure that Substack can figure that out, but there's just so much DNA on the ConvertKit side that, you know, is on their side. And um, I mean, I'm sure they'll both be really successful, but it's just super, super fascinating. I think what Substack done is just amazing. I think it's no just, doubt. It's, no it's, doubt. it's so wild and there's so much intelligence going on over there. I think they just need to make sure that they don't just do the function thing that we just talked about. They need to go and search for where that value is. Cause they're already seeing a little bit of like pushback here and there on like the rates and things like that. Like, Oh, you don't help us bring the money, but you're taking some of the money, which is a very classic like billing objection. Every billing system under the sun, that's how they charge. And, you know, it's a really classic objection. But I think that's what Substack needs to do is like, how can they either up the experience level somehow for me as a writer, I guess, plus my my subscribers or get me more subscribers? Because either one of those I'd pay for. I think they're really good at having the right philosophical narrative today where yeah. people need to earn money in ways that they're, they weren't able to in the past and had to like stick with media outlets and stuff. 
And I think they've nailed a philosophical take on that and are hire, have hired like some people I, I, I respect highly in that area. I yeah. think it's the area where they're weakest today is like iterating the product itself. Yeah. And I'm in multiple groups with people with newsletters because I have one sure. too. It's just incredible how much, like it's almost every day in like each group that someone talks about churning off of Substack. And yeah. that that's the piece where it just tells me like they have everything else right. It's just something about their inability to accelerate product development and iteration that's probably going to hurt them unless they figure that out. In, right. in their defense, though, what's really interesting is that people said that about a lot of the products we love at some point, right? Like, That's remember true. how terrible HubSpot was? And they, yes. they admitted this, so we're not being complete ass. But, like, it was so bad, and then they came in and made products such a focus. This was prior to the IPO. My thing is, I think Substack needs to choose a direction. I think they need to either become Patreon mm. or they need to become ConvertKit. ConvertKit, they're more on the creator side, these types of things. I don't know if their clientele necessarily makes sense, but they, if they go Patreon, I think there's like Patreon, they've been very open of like, our job isn't to get you more subscribers. We are for established creators and we make that really easy. We have multiple tiers. We allow you to like, you know, sell different things. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's, you're seeing that with like, you know, some of the vice areas, like OnlyFans, these types of things where they're essentially going into the Patreon space essentially. And I think that's, there's a space there of niching that down for writers, for artists, other things. And then Patreon will kind of be the catch-all or the yep. convert kit, which will actually help like, you know, people actually, you know, look good, feel good, all these types of things, which I think is great. It's all of a sudden, just because of one company, a fascinating space all of a sudden, like it, it just, yeah. it kind of blows my mind that like, that's what happened there. That's why it's one, like I think about a lot because I think the ESP should have just had it just in, on a basic level. They should have just figured this out. And instead, yeah. they were chasing the next opportunity, which is like ads and marketing and stuff like that, which makes sense. And that's on the distribution side. But from a like basics standpoint, if you collect email and you let people send email, it seems pretty trivial to like let people charge for the emails. Yeah. Just conceptually. And that's all Substack really is. And it's good flow for it. But from a technology standpoint, it's nothing. So from a philosophical standpoint, they've got the right timing. Now, the question is, can anyone else go go after that? And I don't know, because sometimes like the brand stuck in people's heads, you yeah. just don't get out of that. And you, it's hard to get a new audience, right? Like that's why when you say convert kid and creators, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's like where they started. That's where they are. That's what they are. Yeah. But what about this other use case where it's literally media folks trying to make money or people well, who are like funny. media folks trying to make writers trying to make money? Yeah, I love they did not do or I don't know if they have it, but I never hear about a custom URL function with them. I hear subscribe to my Substack. Oh, check out my Substack. Substack. It, it reminds me of like the web 1.0 days of like xpage.com and geocity sites and these types of things. I, I do think that's a moat. I think like Zoom has that moat, you know, as well now, um, even though like I think, you know, they're probably a little inflated in terms of like valuation and stuff like that, you know, given COVID. But I don't know. It'll be interesting. But you're already seeing this. I think I think that the broader story here is email probably is going to go purely to kind of a um, you have to be, you know, an ESP like for products rather than an actual marketing provider. Because you're seeing even like MailChimp. MailChimp is basically going Shopify like they're adding commerce they're doing a bunch of things. You know, HubSpot, it, they're not an ESP, although most people use them as an ESP because it's their marketing and sales platforms. Right. So 
I don't know if there's a lot of standalone, you know, those might become the corner stores where you just have a niche like ESP, but most of them are, are going to get rolled up somehow unless you have like a Twilio that's rolling up, you know, because they're creating dev communication products essentially. Yeah. I mean, you even have ESPs for real estate, right? It's just yeah. one of the oldest tried and true SaaS opportunities. Like if you're even like a micropreneur or something like that, there's no reason not to pop up an ESP with some niche and make enough money to like quit your job or whatever. It's, yeah. it's still possible. And there's even things like Mailgun that provide yeah. very cheap infrastructure for this stuff. So yeah. it's just fascinating space. It's interesting. What else do you think is going to be interesting in 2021? 2021. This is our 2021 episode. We've had a few weeks to reflect. Well, I'm going to throw it back at you with and pose a very interesting thought that Uh-oh. I've had and haven't really talk to anyone about. I think we know now that like in order to really scale a SaaS business, you want companies that are paying 10K or more a year. Okay. So I'm, I'm starting with that assumption. Okay. So I have a belief that if you want to scale really fast, you don't actually start free and you don't start enterprise. You start mid-market and then you find your opportunities both ways. Eek. That's so right? counterintuitive, so, at least right now. Yes. So, so, so this is my new theory. And the reason is because then you've got the hard problem solved. The hard problem is how do we find and sell to 10K plus, to people who will pay us an ASP of 10K plus a year? Because that's the money. That's the thing that scales. Just do the math, right? You want to get to a million ARR? Yeah. Well, if it's 50K, it's 20 companies. If it's 10K, it's only 100. Yeah. And that's a yearly price point. And you could do yearly upfront at 10K plus price points, no problem. And then you build the muscle to just get good at that because there's enough market there. And then you figure out the free, the trial, go down. Because you can do it if you're at the 10K to 50K mark. You can't do it if you're at like 100K plus because the systems there typically, this is not always the case, mm. are more enterprisey. And then they have the, you know, the whole thesis that's old school. It's like, you can't yeah. go down market. You can only go up market. Yeah. I'm like, nah, you want to go sideways yeah, yeah. because that solves the problem of up or down because the tooling and efficiency you need at 10K is not actually that different anymore than what you need at freemium. Ideally, like self-serviceable, easy to buy, all yeah. that. And then the, sh- the stuff you need at enterprise, you've already started sorting out because you're hearing about security and audit logs and all that sure. and access already at the 10K where they're like, they're kind of talking about it. But once you start creeping up to 25, 50K, they're already there because of the company size and stuff like that. So this is just the new thought in my head. I don't yeah. think anyone's going to buy it, but I buy it. And that's how I'm operating with the way I think about my own I businesses and the way I think about things. Yeah. So I think I can fully agree if I modify what you said to go chase, maybe it's a thousand bucks a month. Maybe it's five, go chase 500 to a thousand bucks a month first. Yeah. There you go. I don't know if I would call that mid market only because, yeah, I don't know. I, I might end up quibbling semantically and I don't want to do that. Here, here's here's the thing. I, I, think- I, I just call it mid-market because there's SMB, mid-market, enterprise. So so it's all loose and nobody sure. knows the definitions sure, sure, anymore because sure. the markets yeah. are really big. So I'm just saying the middle. You want to call it the middle? Fine. Yeah, sure. I Well, I here's, here's why I quibble a little bit because I think the problem you have in like true mid-market, if you take HubSpot, for example, HubSpot was like, cool, we're going to go mid-market. They didn't go down market like Infusionsoft Keep did. They didn't go high market like I think Eloqua, Marketo at least um, did. And mid-market can get extremely expensive, both from a sales perspective, but also ultimately from a product perspective because there's a lot of noise. Because you're getting nibbled, you know, from both sides, basically. I'm totally cool with saying 500 to 100 Okay. 
like that, I mean, I'm sorry, five hundred to a thousand. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, more yeah, than yeah. cool with that. You can call it that. That's fine. Great. Um, those price, we could talk about price points instead. You're the pricing guy anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so five hundred to thousand a month is is where I would recommend companies start. Not. Lower. I think I would agree with that. And here's 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 some reasons that I don't know if you mentioned or I don't think you mentioned. One, I think that the signal to noise ratio is probably ideal right there because five hundred bucks is not like I'm just going to sweat my credit card. Five hundred bucks is like. Okay, cool. And I think this is what a lot of people get wrong with starting with freemium. Like you should not start freemium from day one unless you know what you're doing with freemium. You have a you know marketplace that requires freemium or you have like a data need that requires freemium. You shouldn't have freemium until you really understand that precipice between free and paid. And if you start with freemium and you're dealing with all these like little $50 folks and you're not an SMB type product, it's a lot of noise. But I think signal to noise ratio is really good when you have something like something like 500 to 1000. But yeah, that's that's what I would do as well. If you're in B2B SaaS, I think other industries are yeah, of course. a little bit tough. This is specific to B2B SaaS. Yep. Yeah, I also think that that part also forces you to properly figure out retention early on. There's so many people who have little dinky like price points and they can hide behind just like sending an email, doing an ad campaign. And then all of a sudden they're like $3 million and they're all excited. And it's like, yeah, but that $3 million is just deprecating and you can't add, you know, $10 million every single month, um, if not every single year to like make up for things. So yeah, I think that's what I would do. And then I would pick, as you kind of mentioned, which direction you go and depending on the product, I would start to then creep up, but make sure you're very disciplined about not going down or go down and then wait to go back up. Here's where we made this mistake. We should have started with that on the retained product. I don't think we knew we were building the retained product until we built the the metrics product, which revealed the problem for retain. And what ended up happening is we needed to hunker down for probably 18 to 24 months to get the free product to be really accurate, which ended up being a big moat for us. And that wasn't going to happen while we also were chasing $500 to $1,000. And then when we came out with the paid product, the retained product, it was like we were chasing little guys and gals and we should have just been really aggressively focused on like, we're not going to talk to anyone unless they look like this profile. And this last year we've changed and finally went up market, which is, you know, we're chasing people for really one to 10 grand a month. That's kind of our target right now for that product. And all of a sudden, like the business is working really, really well, you know, because you're going after real customers. In a way, it's just doing the math. If you yeah, just do it's just switching. You, 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 if you just do the math, you'll realize that like there's certain price points that if you can target them and build a product that can work at those price points, the business just grows faster without yeah. you having to do as much work. Hundred percent. And then you, and then you earn the right to do the work in whatever direction you want, whether it's more enterprise or down. I, I actually am pretty aggressive about this stuff. So the way I think about it is not quite what you were describing. Although I would recommend people describe think of it the way you do. I actually think of it as like hitting that price point and then figuring out how you go up or down happens really quickly because there's always edges of the price point. So yeah. there's always a company you're going to talk to randomly that's like really big. Big. Yeah. And there's always a company that creeps in Tiny. that's really small. Yep. And if you're really paying attention and know how to ask the right questions, you start understanding the nuances of what do the smaller customers need that we either do or don't do or what do they not need that we do because that yeah. helps you with like the triangulation of offering and value. And on the enterprise side, it's purely like, it's not, what do we do that they don't need? It's more like, what do we don't do that they really, really need and won't buy without? And yeah. and I think by staying 
in in the middle and and being convicted on that, you get to learn in both directions. And then you get to actually make plays in both directions almost simultaneously. And it's much easier because it's just creeping into the same process you're using to talk to customers. While when you talk to enterprise, there's just a different process of talking to them in, in multiple stages usually and a longer timeline. And if you talk to the low end, it's usually high churn, yeah. Other problems are way higher on their minds and you haven't figured out what they are, but you're not selling. So you have to have lots of conversations to figure it out. Well, if you stay in the middle, you'll start creeping in on both just naturally once you find fit in the middle. And that level of tactical and strategic like decision-making approach is something that like with you, I love talking about things that like nobody's got on their minds that I can tell. Yeah. Right. And and this is one where I just don't think people have that on their minds because I'm taking almost like a customer development and sales discovery first approach sure. to it. And when you do that, you just realize that like velocity, depth, level of attention you have in a conversation needs to be around serious price points. Otherwise, you're just self-service. That's totally fine. But getting the self-service folks to actually converse with you is also challenging. Yeah. <laughs> It's also a huge, right. it feels like a waste of time. It's not a waste of time, exactly. it feels like You're one. paying me $50 a month and I got to get on a call with you and like talk to you. And I'm not saying that's bad. You should do that. But the mental mentality and the mental model that gets a little bit difficult. Yeah. That's correct. I'm really glad I was an idiot sometimes with some of those things because I would have people- Same here. Like, I would do demos and the person would be like, I'm only making it like, I'm only worth this much to you. Why are you talking to me? And I'm just like, oh, am I not supposed to talk to you? Like, I, I didn't like, and yeah, like from a logical perspective, like, yes, you're only paying me 50 bucks a month. Yeah, my time is worth X, blah, 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 blah. But it's like the learning. And this is why I, the, the one quibble I have with this is, I, I do think this makes sense, but the one, the, the one kind of caveat or addendum is you have to pick where your forcing functions are with the research you're doing. And you have to make sure you're in an environment where you can be very disciplined. Because I think too many people, you know, if we go to even like earlier than this, I think too many people don't even have the discipline to do customer development properly. I think that they don't even have discipline to do customer development in the first place. Um, and then in addition to that, I think that there's a lot of like chasing your instinct and your vision board, if you will, when most of the time our instincts are completely wrong. Um, yep. They start in a good place, but then you have to validate them to really shape them. And so... I think that as long as you're using this as a forcing function and you're like, I'm not going to go above X and I'm not going to go below Y until I make a very conscious decision. And this is why I always suggest like, even if you're not going to actually collect the data, because you and I talk about customer development all the time publicly, no one, like 20% of people do it. The 20% of people who do do it are amazing and they do really, really well. Um, but what I always tell people is like, listen, even if you're not going to collect, even if you're not going to follow these methodologies that I just talked to you about, please at the very least get a spreadsheet out and just define your ideal customer profiles or segments. Just in a vacuum, do it in a boardroom, whatever you need to do. Because at least doing that, and in this case, at least doing like here are our bounds, will force you to at least revisit that and very consciously say, okay, we're moving our bounds from X to Y now. That's the biggest thing that I, I, I worry about with people starting too much in a middle of something um, because they get nibbled and they don't have the discipline not to get nibbled. I got to tell you what, kind of shocked me and blew me away in, in a good way this morning too. So again, I was on a, a an event and Todd, the CEO of Okta was there. And the first, one of the first questions was asked was like some form of like, how did you start? Where did this thing start? You know, how'd you figure out the opportunity? And right away he's like, oh, there's this book that Freddie, my co-founder and I read. And he's like, it's called Four Steps to the Epiphany. There you go. 
which is Steve Blank's, Steve Blank's book on customer development. And he, he said that one, not the startup manual, which yeah. means that's like OG, like 10 years that's right, the ago. That's legit one. Yeah. yeah, that's the legit one. I mean, the other one's legit too, but that one's legit. Like that, that one's, one's not the, watered down. That, that one's yeah. raw. That one's raw and real and like clear. The yeah. other one's like a manual, very different, right? And yeah. and then he's and then he even and, and and he even said, oh, and that was like the precursor to lean startup and all that stuff. And he said, I think that was and all that. And what blew me away is like, you're saying that only twenty percent of people are doing this stuff, but here it's like public company CEO, multi billion dollar company, growing fast in yeah. a great category, and he just back to basics. He's like, dude, we just did that. <laughs> That's yeah. what we did. That's how we started. And like today, you and I would give the same recommendation. Go yeah. find that book, read the book. If you don't know how to talk to customers and how to do customer development and sales discovery, and honestly, if you follow the instructions there, you will figure it out. Yeah. Like pretty much guaranteed. The question is, are you going to follow the instructions there? Are you going to do really the things they say? Are you going to have stopped, the convos? Yeah. We we stopped publishing content on customer development. We would do this because part of like pricing is doing research. Yeah. and. We stopped doing it because everyone would read it. Everyone would get excited about it and no one would do it. And yep. we were just like, that's not really good. But but it's funny, you mentioned that with Okta. Atlassian is aggressive about this. HubSpot is religious about it. All these companies, that's what they end up doing. And they've that's how they got there as well. And I don't think people realize that enough. So if we had a mission on these on these talks that we're doing that people get to hear, like I think one of them is like, hey, go do customer development. Go go just go do it. You don't just go you, talk to I, people. <laughs> you don't have an excuse. There's even like a mini manual uh, in the book called the mom test. I yeah, forgot the yeah, author, yeah. but that one's really good too. That kind of gives you, almost scares you into talking to customers is kind of one way I would say it. It, it blew my mind though. Cause I was like, okay, all right. Like we're still talking about this. This isn't a norm. Yeah. That's a problem. Well, you know what the other reason I think this is, is because um, I, I have, and you know, Facundo, I have a very strong willed, highly opinionated head of product. Um, yes. they're, they're loosely held, thankfully, and we figured out how to build our relationship over the past seven, eight years. Yeah. But it's uh, one of those things where like, I didn't know that, other, like, I just assumed, because every product person I met was very much like that, or they had like strong opinions, maybe they weren't loosely held, but they, they still had really strong opinions. I didn't realize that most product people are kind of project managers, not because they want to be, but because the CEO's involved too much, the CMO's involved too much, and one of the greatest things that I did not do, but the greatest things to happen to ProfitWell is Facundo, before he came on board, he was like, listen, I need to be in charge of all product decisions, like 100%. We will argue until you're done, I'm done, we'll convince each other, whatever it is. But I like, and that was when I was like, ah, you know, young CEO, I was like, ah, this doesn't feel right. I need power, I need power, right? Smartest decision we ever made because he's going to sweat this more than I am. And I I can't, even if I have really good ideas, I need to be able to convince him or he needs to be able to convince me on these types of things. And I think if you're a leader in product and you're working in a company that is you don't have that control or at least most of that control, I would find another job. And most product people, you can, you know, we're in, we're in an environment where you can find another job and it's not something like we're digging ditches and that type of thing. Just to caveat it for anyone who, who wants to take away from that. I think you're talking about one of the biggest pitfalls of like working in software is like this idea yeah. that like we have co-ownership over product. And I think someone at the end of the day has to make the call regardless of what everyone else says yeah. and has to have conviction on making the call and also be collaborative enough to like get the inputs, not just employees and team members and CEOs, but like customers, right? Yeah. Future customers. That's, that's another one. Like if you stop doing customer development, you lose sight of the market. And yeah. a lot of companies stop doing customer development. So they lose sight of the market and they don't have that muscle anymore. Like 
I don't know if Okta has a muscle anymore, but that's how they started. Yeah. You know, it appears that they do from just looking at growth and iteration and all that, but I don't know. Yeah. Right. But that's the thing that I actually stress a lot, which is how do we embed that in the culture instead of just saying, oh, there's a few people that know it and love it. And, and how do you align your values on it? Like, you know, we, we put a lot of links to our old customer development topics and content uh, in our employee handbook when they first join. Mm. So we stress that point. A lot of folks on our team love that we do it because every time we talk about something we're going to do, we bring it back to, we heard this from a customer. We heard these from yeah. heard this from these 20 customers. Here are the nuances of what we heard. And that's why the spec looks the way it does. And that's yeah. why these three things are must-haves because like we know that's going to hit the mark. We're sure yeah. of it. Right. And that certainty is difficult when it's on your gut and your intuition. Cause then there's the yelling matches and the opinions. When if you literally are doing customer development properly, you're getting quotes from existing and future customers yeah. about exactly how they describe the problems they have and what they're trying to do to solve them today. And that's really the magic. It's like understanding that and then solving the problem. And I also think that it's it's important to recognize that it does take effort. And it is a very easy effort to deprioritize. I think we lulled, yeah. we atrophied at one point in customer development because it was just, one, we were working on stuff we kind of knew what we needed to do and it was a bit of a grind that was going to take a while. But two, like just, you know, there's always these little step levels in a company where it becomes a crap show that you're trying to figure out. But one thing that kind of helped us, and, and this is kind of a um, another forcing function, is we, we have a pretty disagreeable culture. And that doesn't mean we're like arguing or volatile, although it definitely was volatile at one point, only amongst a couple of people, um, which is, you know, not good, but not terrible. But I think we developed a very like debate disagreeable culture, which means that people, when there are questions or when there are like, you know, well, what about this or what about that? It might slow us down a little bit, but people go, okay, cool. I'm going to go get some data. I'm going to go get some information. And you're never going to have like perfect information or perfect data. And that's not the expectation, but you at least have enough where it shows not only the confidence, but also shows like the rigor was put into whatever the decision was. And, you know, then whoever the decision maker is, you know, can, can go do their thing. So yeah, that's something that helped us a lot. This is just something I've been thinking about a lot because at FYI, we're about 14, 15 people and uh, need to scale soon or are actually scaling yeah, I'm right excited. now. And, I know we can't talk about it, but I'm excited for you to be <laughs> like 300 you. people by the end of the year, by the end of next year. Uh, it's not, well, I don't just, know how many, but it's going to be yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I'm usually not one to like say that because I, I, I really believe in less people. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, can I, think can I comment on that actually? Because you said yeah, the first time, first time you and I ever, we're not going to talk about what you're doing, top secret. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, not yet. the first time you and I ever like did some work together, uh, we did some research for Crazy Egg using our yep. Price Intelligently product. Yep. And I remember coming to you and being like, all right, here's the recommendations. This is great. Heaton, we're going to make, this could be awesome. You're going to make so much revenue. It's going to be awesome, amazing, all these other things. And you're like, yeah, but I have to hire salespeople then. And you were just like, I don't want more people. More people, more problems. And more that's people, why, more problems. And, and I will continue why. to say that. I know, but you're now willing to get the problems because the the, the revenue, the payoff is going to be great. If, if the opportunity is worth it, all, all bets are off. All yeah, the rules yeah. are out the door. You know? I just wanted like, to point that out yeah. because when you started no, I talking love it, about please. what you're going yeah. on, I was like, I mean, yeah. the first time you showed it to me, I was like, yeah. you realize this type of product requires this type of action, right? Yeah. You're like, yeah. yep, I'm going, I'm going. I was like, all right, cool. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, if my thesis is you got to start at that price point in mid-market and then left to right, it sales. Like that's... Yeah, yeah. I think I have a much different appreciation for customer development and sales discovery and sales than I ever did and how all that connects. And yeah. it might sound absurd, but like it just connected for me, even marketing connecting to all that in a way that I, I've never had before. So like when I think about it, what we've, what we've learned and, and the thing I debate as we scale 
and I think we've gotten to it is, and I mentioned this because you said it's a debate culture. We've been talking about how to label the way we do things. And we got to, I started with, oh, it's a discussion culture because we don't really debate. Like the debate approach doesn't work internally for us for a number of reasons. I know some of the parties um, involved and I, I know that yeah, that would not yeah, It just work. won't work. It just won't work. <laughs> hey, that's, that's totally cool. Yeah, like yeah. it won't work, right? Like whether it's me or my co-founder or, 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 you know, other people in the team just won't work. And so what we came to, and I use this word almost too much internally, and uh, I, I don't know, I, I go through moments, but yeah. it's, it's an alignment culture. Yeah, and, like and 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 for us, to your point about product, which is really product and engineering to me, yeah. you can't say, you can't think of product without thinking of engineering, in my opinion, in software companies. Well, the best engineering team's products embedded completely. Yeah. You got it. And, and so what I think about is the reason it's an alignment culture is actually because of the environment we've created on the engineering team. Just, just to double click on what you said, like, and, and you were talking about a little bit about the approach. Our approach is actually when there are projects that are bigger, because they're always big projects, like yeah. no matter how much we try to chunk stuff down, there's big projects. We actually spend weeks on planning. Yeah. Weeks. Technical research, specific Amazon services, AWS services, whatever it is, there's massive speed of research on that. Because of one thing, everyone on engineering knows when there's a big project like that, everybody on the team that's relevant for that project that could do it in terms of write the code, and even some people who can't, like our head of engineering, who he can write the code, but he's not going to. So I shouldn't say can't, because now he can write the code. He learned how to code after 20 years, by the way, of not coding. So whole whole different ballgame there, but I'm so happy he did, because he's like, he knows everything about AWS now that like even other engineers who've been doing it for years don't know, because he's fresh. But the interesting thing is everyone creates the plan their own plan of getting the thing done. And yeah. then they come together and discuss it to come up with the best plan. And this thing, and for us, plans are like hourly estimates and, and specific technology and all that level of depth. And we were trying to figure out how to label that and what to call it because we're not debating. We're not really discussing yeah. except at certain points. So we just felt like, well, we want alignment because like alignment is what moves things, what moves things forward fast. And we're willing to do, like you said, slow down, spend the time as long as we can get in alignment, but in a way that's like productive and additive, not like alignment, like, oh, I need to tell you what I'm thinking. So you're aligned. It's more like, no, we all get to think together. And so, yeah. And it's not even disagree and commit. It's align and commit Yeah, because the disagree part in our culture just won't work. I'm debating if I should go down a semantic road or not. I'm, I think, I'm always down. I know, I, know. I think here's, here's the thing. I think I'll a lot pull of people, out the dictionary, Patrick, ready? No, no, hold on. Just kidding. Just kidding. So I, huge Andy Grove is my guiding light when it comes to ops, like operations, yep. management, yep. these types of things. And and I think the thing, so, so disagreeing commit has a, has a, a nice little part in my heart. And I think that a lot of people get wrong about disagreeing commit is, and also like being disagreeable, I think as well. Is that it's not a it's not about volatility. It's not about always being disagreeable. Meaning, like you always have to have some sort of disagreement. It's about if you are someone who disagrees with this, make sure you say something, right? And I think that disagreeing commit is more like your job is to if you disagree with it, say something. If at some point the decision maker makes the decision, then you need to commit and do everything in your power to go for it. But if you don't disagree, great. Like we all move on and we all go for it. And the problem is how much explanation you had to make uh, yeah, to explain what disagree means in that context. So, that's true. Yeah, Andy Grove, not debating anything he says. I mean, that, that's yep. like hands down, like goat. He's the goat, right? Like, yeah, yeah, no yeah. doubt, or was. But the big thing is like in our culture at FYI, if you say that word, 
people don't know what that means. Yeah. They don't know how to resonate. Gotcha. It doesn't resonate, right? Like, while well, you, like, I know you're on your debate team and like, yeah, we've done you know, a lot like, to like, train like, everybody like, and yeah, stuff like on that. that. Yeah. And like, and like, you know, if you even like, like, if you knew my personality type, right, and you dug yeah. into that, you'd realize that my personality type is the peacemaker, yep. the mediator, yeah. right? So disagree is not even like, like, like even for me, it's like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know what it means. You have an opinion. The other person, do they disagree? No. What's kind of different opinions? Conversely, I know that if we set alignment internally, people would work, right? No, they would go. Wait, democracy? I don't. That doesn't make any sense. And 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 in 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 our company, like that's not that doesn't come. It wouldn't even trigger anyone. It it wouldn't even mean anything. It would just be like, oh, alignment. Yeah, yeah. I know what that means. That means that because when we're going to get to the best place possible together. Yeah. Right. So what's really funny is the way you describe the engineering part. I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. Like it's not a, but, but people bring up like, um, I could be like, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's, it's where you put some of the emphasis. And and what I like about this conversation, this part of the conversation is that it's either way there's trade-offs. There's always trade-offs. And I don't think you can have values or you can't have any North stars with anything unless you have those trade-offs, you know, and being disagreeable trade-off. We're not going to attract people who don't want that type of culture, who wants a very like, and, and we have a very collaborative culture, but if someone can't, you know, have a discussion that isn't volatile, but is like, no, I don't if think they, that if, actually if they makes can't sense. start with, I disagree, blah, 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 or, yeah. Hey, I think that's not the right way to do it. Then it doesn't work. Right. Or, and even in, Hey, I wasn't going to say this, but like, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like they, that's, yeah, and, they can't, and, they can't and, be and, and if you've even run a company or been involved in a company that's over 20 people, you realize that like, you have to spend a lot of effort to get people to share their opinions. Especially the, the bigger uh, you get, yeah. the harder it is to get. Not even just like, oh, CEO trying to get people's opinions. No. Yeah. As a whole, people just don't share their opinions. And you have to spend a lot of time making sure the words are right in the culture so that people feel yeah. not just comfortable, but like it's culturally acceptable to do it. That's why I love that Amazon calls it disagree and commit. And Andy Grove has his like thing. But like to me, like again, if the word's not right, no one's going to understand it in the culture, in the company, That's and true. it doesn't matter what the word is. And you're right. Like, you're probably doing the same thing we are, you know, but that for me, like, that's a classic example of why for us it's an alignment culture yeah. and how I describe it. And if you're doing the same thing, you'd probably, you're doing the same thing, but you would just describe it differently because that works for like the people that you're yeah. hiring and the culture you've set, right? So totally. it's kind of, it's a really interesting thing on the semantics on this one. Sometimes yeah. semantics are useless, but I think on this one, it's like, yeah, it might be the same thing, important. but what's going to what's going to work Resonate. internally yeah. to push push the ball forward and get everyone aligned or at least get everyone committed to the same thing. Totally. I think we also and I think we should do an entire episode on like culture and these types of things. Oh, I would love to. Yeah, that's fun. It's always a fun topic. Yeah. yeah. But I think the one yeah, the one thing I would say is that we we do and I thought this was just because we were unique, but I do think it's a it's a constant for all companies. You have to train people on your culture. True. Like you have to yeah. train people. You have to reward the right behaviors. You have to talk to people about the the not so great behaviors. Because I found that, especially for us, this whole concept we have, you know, feedback is non negotiable. That's something that we talk about. We have disagree and commit. Um, we have you know care deeply about you know a couple things. We we have all these like phrases that we talk about and have become part of the culture. One, people don't understand the semantic, as you just said. Like, what do you mean by that? Two, some of the things you're going to want with your culture are going to be these things that are not intuitive from someone who has been basically told what to do in school for you know 18 years, right? Uh, 20 some years, right? And so we just this week I had a situation where we have we do not 
like anonymous forms, but just because, you know, just in case you need an anonymous form in case something crazy happens, we have it. We always are like, please do not use this unless it's absolutely an emergency. We had someone use it once for being like, oh, we don't like that there's no more Diet Coke in the fridge. And we were just, and they were anonymous. And we were just like, are you You could have just said who you are. It's okay. We'll get more like, Diet Coke, be, right? Don't be a We'll get more right? Diet Coke. It's okay. Yeah. But yeah, someone sure. did submit one because we scheduled something over the inauguration. And, mm. you know, we got this very like, oh, this is, you know, does not reflect great on the morals. All of a sudden they made it a moral thing, blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm going to, I haven't had our all hands yet, but this week I'm going to say in our all hands, listen, like first, amazing that someone, you know, that you brought this up. That you care. It's really good. Yeah. It's a really good teaching experience um, on multiple levels. One, like you didn't just let this sit and fester and everything like that. But two, like, hey, like you're an adult. If you wanted to watch the inauguration, it's totally fine. The meeting was recorded. You could have said, hey, like blah, 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 blah. We had multiple people actually ask and, you know, we said, yeah, totally do it your thing. Like you're an adult, right? And I think that's a lesson for us. It's always a reminder for us that like we need to constantly reinforce our culture. We need to constantly reinforce that, yeah, make your voice heard, make something happen, do these types of things, which is really kind of interesting. Well, that's where values help, right? If you had a value yeah. that you could point to and say, hey, this this would have been on value or you know, aligned with our value and this yeah. isn't. Right. And that, that's where the binary on the values start coming in. Our head of engineering uh, worked with me at Kissmetrics too. And he was a lot, oftentimes an annoying one when it came down to it, especially yeah. when we had to make customer calls where he was like, look, these are our values. What we're proposing right now goes against our values. Interesting. What do you all want to do? Yeah. Right. And like the second he said that, everyone's like, yeah, okay, which values? And how does it go against it? And what's an alternative, yeah, right? Because yeah, nobody yeah. wants to go against the values if we wrote them and they're real. Otherwise, we're yeah. going to go question the values. And we're not going to question the values at that point, right? It's more like, okay, yeah. you're right. What do we want to do? Let's go find a solution that's more aligned with our values. And if it's not, then we're making an exception for a very deliberate reason. We're not yeah. just like willy-nilly being like, oh, yeah, we say these things, but we don't operate with them, right? Because it just doesn't work. And yeah. oftentimes in a company, like this also goes back to product just before we close this out, because I'm sure it's time to close this out. Yeah. But like, it goes back to product in the sense of, at some point you realize that like, there's one thing that really matters in your business more than anything else for your product. And then if you can figure that out and then align values around it, it's on. Like the customer feels It's it. on. So let me give you a quick example. So in the case of your product, since it's an analytics product in a lot of ways, it's a data product. If a dip in a graph is your fault, that's not okay. Yeah. If a dip is because the company's losing revenue or whatever, sure. But if sure. the dip is because your system's blipped, yep. that's, and so it's almost like that's non-negotiable to me Yeah. in your product. I like that. So then how do the values come out of that so that when there's issues, you can go back to it and say, hey, look, you know? Anyway, just, just a thought because it came up for me today on stuff that we're not talking about yet um, around like- only go up though. He, yeah. only go up. I'm about to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Finally, I've been waiting for you to monetize something so you can use our we, stuff. We, we, don't, we don't use Stripe. It's all good. <laughs> oh, that's all right. We got we will see. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> see, I didn't know. All right, man. We are, we're just about an hour. Any final thoughts? Yep. Any reflective thoughts on what we just talked about? No, I, I think more on a personal note, like I'm looking forward to doing more of these with you. So let me, pumped, let me man. just say that. And, and people hearing it, like if you have feedback or anything for us, we're both on Twitter. You'll find us. The more heat in my life, the better. Uh, my only thing I, is- I feel the same about you, dude. Talk. Oh, I do. I do have one more thing. But oh, let me it. Let me let you finish. No, you finish. I got one what more thing. What I was going to say is talk to your effing target customers. customers. Put a number on the board. 
10, start with 10 in a month, just do something and then optimize that number going forward. Just do it, do it, do it. And then the last thing I'll say is I, I'm going to have to get some chai. So for those of you who don't know, Heaton, Heaton and I, whenever I would be in San Francisco, and then even when you were in Boston, we would go get tea. Yeah, and for then sure. Basically, every time we've had meetings during COVID, I'm always like craving chai. So I'm literally going to leave here and go get some chai. But uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to hang out tomorrow, which I'm excited. But what were you going to say? I was going to say that the sponsor of this podcast, which is the unofficial sponsor, was Drift. <laughs> some of this is on video. If you're on give video, him credit. you can see my yeah, I got you my can see my drift sweatshirt, dude. You use a quote from sweatshirt. David Cancel, and like we're well, wearing all, his swag, and like it's not his dude. Quote. He whatever he said it, he it's his now. I just it's his DC, now, dude. DC gets his head inflated sometimes, so sometimes I have to text some messages and be like, "Hey, man, you're not nothing." No, but I'm just dude. kidding. I Dude. do actually text up that only out of jest, though. You mean you're nothing, not you're not nothing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I, I do use but, proper grammar when I'm talking smack. But all I'm saying is, I didn't say that. You said it. <laughs> Our unofficial sponsor <laughs> is Drift because of David Cancel and his generous swag giving yes. all day. I got and and the quality of the swag. Oh I gosh, tweeted about it. So I good. tweeted about it. But like it's real, and the new jackets are even better. And you're you wearing the new wild. one. I'm wearing the old one. You know, it's wild. I love. Yeah, this is the thing I love. And he won't tell me his vendor, which How you is got aggravating it me. Yeah. The tags yeah. are drip. There's no other brand. It's only drip. Oh, I know. Which is amazing. I know the vendor. I know the vendor. I'll oh, figure it out for you. There we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Let oh, me yeah. know. Because I was, we were trying to, we were like, how do we get this vendor? So, so the trick, it. the trick here is, um, and again, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure the vendor is the same as the jacket I'm wearing or the sweatshirt I'm wearing. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, so look at the old yeah, ones. Cause like, dude, DC's not that creative, is he? <laughs> well, dude, <laughs> Just the, the things. No, the 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 um the the fanny pack things. He sent me yeah. one of those too. Yeah. I'm gonna turn into like a little Brooklyn hipster. I'm really excited about it. I'm gonna get no, 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 no. It, it was it, it, yeah, awesome. it was it, it was not a real knock because like they're very oh, creative no. over there. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> no, 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 no. We love DC. We're just giving them no crap. doubt. Um, hell yeah, anytime, cool, all the time. All right. All right, brother. We'll see you next That's week. That's a wrap. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review on this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.